Hello and welcome to the Royal Meteorological Society's podcast. My name is Hannah Manson and I work for the Society as the Science Engagement Manager. We have recently published a new climate briefing paper focusing on what an ice-free Arctic could mean for European weather and today I am joined by the author James Screen. James, please do introduce yourself and let us know a bit about your background. Hi, yes, as, as Hannah says, I'm, I'm James Screen. I'm an Associate Professor in Climate Science at the University of Exeter. And whilst I have broad interests across all climate science, my research really focuses on the, the polar regions, both the, both the Arctic and the Antarctic. But in recent years, I guess it's been heavily focused on the Arctic. We've been drawn to the huge changes that are going on there and trying to understand what those changes mean for the climate system for people living way beyond the Arctic Circle. And that's really kind of where my research has taken me in the last kind of five to 10 years and what the topic of this paper is really about. Great, so let's get stuck in then. So I think it would be helpful uh, to begin by setting the scene. So what is sea ice and how does it naturally fluctuate from one season to the next in the Arctic? Yes, that's that's a good starting point because there are many different types of ice and sea ice is one of them. And that's that's specifically ice that forms through freezing of seawater. So it tends to be it forms in when it gets cold in the winter and your surface of your ocean cools to below the freezing point of salt water and you get a, a relatively thin layer of ice that forms and then that thickens through the winter. It ends up being kind of of the order of a, a metre or two thick. But that's kind of very different to the, to the land ice you get from like the glaciers and the ice sheets which form through accumulation of snow onto places like Greenland and Iceland etc. So there's two different, there's very different types of ice in the Arctic. You've got the sea ice and you've got the land ice. And it's important to differentiate those. Of one, one key reason is that the melting of the sea ice, because it's already floating in the ocean, doesn't make a direct contribution to sea level rise. Whereas if you melted all the ice on, on Greenland, that would raise global sea levels by several metres. So there's a, there's a distinction there between the ice that's already floating, the sea ice and the, and the land ice, like your Greenland ice sheet. And is there a cycle then from, from summer to winter with the sea ice? Yes, of course, exactly right. So the, it, it, it waxes and wanes through the seasonal cycle. When it's cold in the winter, there's more ice and then it peaks at its maximum in March. And then it starts to melt through the, through the spring and the summer. And you usually get to a, a minimum sometime in September. So we've seen that. I mean, that happens year on year, but there's fluctuations between years. So some years your minimum in September will be lower than others. And I guess the important thing that we've noticed over the last 30 or 40 years is those actually across all months of the year, but particularly dramatic in the summer, is that the is the minimum has been getting kind of gradually less and less over time. So we've lost about half the summer ice in the in the last 40 years. And then we now got to a point where there's less ice up in the Arctic, less sea ice in the Arctic in summer now than there probably has been for tens of thousands of years. And that can only really be because of human-induced global warming. So when we talk about an ice-free Arctic, what do we mean? Yeah, so it, it's it's specific to the sea ice. So we're not talking about melting of the, the Greenland ice sheet. That would take a lot more, a lot longer and a lot more warming. So it's the sea ice, the floating ice. And generally, we're, we're talking about summer. So when will we first see uh, conditions in summer where there is effectively no ice over the Arctic Ocean. And I say effectively because the, the definition that's been used in the in the scientific literature is one million square kilometres. And if you looked at a map of what that is, at that point, 
All that's left is a few remnant bits of ice on the kind of northern coasts of Canada and Greenland, which is kind of the last ice to melt. But for all intents and purposes, the bulk of the Arctic Ocean is ice free at that point when you reach one one million square kilometers. So your your ships could could sail over the Arctic Ocean unimpeded. You wouldn't need an icebreaker. So it's basically that's what we mean by essentially ice free. So looking to the future, when do we think an ice-free Arctic in late summer will first occur? I guess we have to be cautious about trying to be too precise here. There are natural fluctuations on top of the long-term trend. So the best we can probably hope for is pick like a 20-year window when we think that will happen. Exactly where in that window it could will depend on the natural fluctuations that we can't really predict that happen as well as the long-term trend. So if we're thinking about like a say a 20 year window when we might expect that to be sometime between 2030 and 2050 is probably a good best estimate and that's that's actually largely independent of the scenario you look the intergovernmental panel on climate change in their reports they look at various plausible or or at least illustrative scenarios of what could happen with greenhouse gas emissions but all of them even the most optimistic ones have a have an increase in greenhouse gases for a little while before mitigation could potentially start to bring things down. So actually, a little bit of extra warming that's probably locked in because our systems can't change that much will take us to kind of the 1.5 or thereabouts, and that that could be sufficient to to see an ice-free Arctic. Exactly which pathway we follow has a big impact on how frequently we would see these ice-free conditions. A warming at 1.5 degrees you may see an ice-free summer kind of once every 40 years. So as you kind of add on every additional fraction of a degree of warming, you kind of increase your chances of that happening more frequently. So if you say two degrees, which is one of the targets set by the IPCC, if we were to reach two degrees, we'd expect to see ice-free summers every three to five years. So certainly a big big increase in how frequent they would be and also how long the ice-free conditions would last. And if we got to somewhere like three degrees, then we'd probably see ice-free conditions almost every year. What about ice-free Arctic year-round? Do we have any projections for those? So year-round would take uh, would be a, a really pessimistic scenario. So I, I sincerely hope we, we wouldn't see that. It'd probably it would take five degrees of warming or more to melt the winter ice. But the, for the more warming you get, that kind of period that would be ice-free. So it, it may be that it's not just in late summer but it stretches through the summer and into autumn it still will get cold in the winter even in the even in the dramatic warming because the arctic is very cold in winter so even if the global warming reaches four degrees you still get conditions in the winter to allow sea ice to form but it will be thinner it'll be less extensive the ice three threshold is is interesting but it, it we should we shouldn't just focus only on that because it's not necessarily a critical point where like impacts suddenly kick in when the ice is gone and um, the ice is being lost now everything we can do to to limit the amount of global warming is is going to have an effect on how much ice we retain so just picking up um, on your point there about impacts towards the middle of your paper you state that the most immediate effect of sea ice loss is obviously to enhance warming in the Arctic because open dark water absorbs more sunlight than reflective sea ice and this basically means that the ocean gains extra heat which it then releases to the air in autumn and winter. But what about further afield? How could sea ice loss affect European weather? Yes, yeah, so there's well-known 
feedbacks, as we call them, or vicious cycles in the, in the, in the climate system of the albedo feedback, which you mentioned, it is one of them. And that is, that's one of the reasons why the Arctic is warming so much faster than the, than the global average. So you mentioned that earlier that we've warmed by about 1.1, 1.2 degrees at the global average, but the Arctic has warmed three or four times faster than that. And, and that amplification is projected to continue. So in a, in the global warming scenario of two degrees, at the global average, that's going to translate to more like five or six degrees up in the Arctic. So very, very profound impacts locally. But what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. So there are potential ways it could affect weather in Europe. One hypothesis that's been been put out and that is attracting a lot of attention at the moment is that as you as you warm the Arctic faster than, than the lower latitudes, you're changing that temperature gradient between the in the poles and the equator. So typically the poles are obviously cold and the equator is warm. So you have a, a strong temperature gradient and that's responsible for generating some of the winds like the jet stream. One idea is that weakening of that temperature gradient would slow the jet stream down, maybe make it more, more wavy, kind of take larger meanders north and south. And these things have bearing on temperature and precipitation at the surface. The, the, the beast from the east, was a good example a few years back where you had a had a an um, anomalous weather pattern that set up and you had winds blowing blowing from the east it was in the name um, and that caused a really cold conditions over over Europe and the UK so this, that and that was associated with a kind of anomalous displacement of the of the jet stream so when you get these kind of movements of the jet stream they can they can lead to extreme conditions at the surface that affect people and their lives. You also just touch on the polar vortex as well, and that some scientists argue that disruptions to the polar vortex, which you you may want to explain a bit further, are made more likely by this sea ice loss. The polar vortex occurs predominantly in winter, and it's a strong circle of winds that blow around the pole. And that they can sometimes weaken, and actually in extreme cases called sudden stratospheric warmings, those those winds can actually switch direction. And when that happens, that, that often then has a downward influence on the jet stream below and on, on surface weather. So if, as argued, Arctic sea ice loss kind of increases these number of these disruptions, then that has the potential for more extreme winter weather, particularly in this case with the polar vortex, because it's a, a winter phenomenon. Does some of that uncertainty come from the fact that it's it's difficult to separate the influence of climate change from natural variability? On, on European weather. Indeed, well, that's part of it. It's also difficult to separate all the different aspects of climate change. We expect the tropics to warm at a faster rate than the global mean as well, particularly higher up in the atmosphere. So extra warming in the lower atmosphere in the Arctic and extra warming in the higher atmosphere in the tropics. And it's been argued that those two aspects, the tropics and the Arctic, are kind of in a tug of war on the jet stream because the warming in the Arctic wants to weaken the jet stream and potentially shift it towards the equator. But actually the, the tropical warming wants to do the opposite, uh, strengthen the jet stream and push it forward. So you've got the natural variability, but also the kind of multifaceted nature of, of, of climate change itself. I'd just like to take a moment actually to point listeners to the paper because I'd really recommend looking at a couple of the graphics in the paper because they help to explain the effects of Arctic sea ice loss on both the jet stream and the polar vortex that we've just been discussing. 
Lastly, and briefly, what do you consider, James, to be the take-home messages of your paper? You you can pick a maximum of three. (laughs) Well, I'll go for three then. (laughs) The first message is that it's unequivocal that sea ice is melting and that human influence is, is a large part of that. So we are losing ice because human activities are warming the planet. And then the second point, which is a logical follow-on from that, is that if we want to slow the rate of sea ice loss or potentially even reverse it to get ice to come back, then we need to dramatically reduce emissions of greenhouse gases. Lastly is the, is the point that what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. So yes, there's, there's certainly a lot of uncertainty into the exact detail of how sea ice loss will affect places beyond the Arctic. But but I think it's it's clear that it isn't just something that we should worry about for the polar bears. It is something that could well affect us all. Thank you so much for wrapping that up so nicely and for joining me today. Um, to those listening, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you would like to read the new briefing paper, An Ice-Free Arctic, What Could It Mean for European Weather?, or find out about others in the series, then please do visit our website, www.armets.org, and also make sure to follow the Society on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks very much for listening. Mm